right. Well, we are in week two uh, of this series, Twisted Love, Unraveling the Deceptions of Cultural Sexuality. And the goal here is that we look right at, we, we, we deal head on with these deceptions that culture is weaving around the issues of sexuality and gender and identity and marriage. Uh, and what we said last week is that as a culture, we are in a crisis of confusion. There's never been less stability around these issues than I think there is right now. And um, what, where we landed last week was to say if what we want and what we desire most is to know how does sex work, how does marriage work, and gender work, and life work, how do these things work, then we need to listen to the voice that designed those things. The voice of the designer rather than the voice of the deceiver. The deceiver is speaking here. And he wants us to listen because he wants to whisper that these things aren't the way God designed them and that you can take them and, and, and make them anything that you want and apply them any way that you want. And yet what we discover is God has given us in his design a plan for these things. And his plan is always best. And it always leads to our thriving. And so um, I want to give you a little bit of a word of caution. And I may give you this word each week, but I just feel led to say there's a tendency in all of us, and I've already found myself guilty of this. There's, I think there's a tendency when we know we're going to be dealing with this, issues of sexuality and talking maybe about homosexuality or gender or these sorts of things, it's easy for us to go, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. This is really what they need to hear. I know exactly who needs to hear this sermon. I really wish they would, right? There's a tendency in us. But I want us to remember that we all have room to grow in our understanding of God's good design in these areas. And more than that, we all have room to grow in our maturing of how we allow them to thrive in our marriage in our relationships, and how God is glorified in them in our life. And so it's from that position that we, that we step. And remember, what's the parable we're holding in our hand for the next three weeks now? It's the parable of the beam or the splinter. Jesus said, don't go scratching at splinters when you got a beam, right? So we're, we're going to remember that as we navigate through because the ultimate goal is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we would... We would be equipped. We would be getting a foundation of believing that allows us not just to shout truth. We want to be able to tell the truth, but we want to be able to give the truth around these issues with grace and with hope and with love, right? What we've tended to be marked by over the last uh, 30, 40 years of the church is yelling a bunch of truth devoid of any measure of love in it. I want us to give this with love and grace and truth without feeling like we have to diminish what is true, without having to sacrifice what is true. And my prayer is that people who really are struggling, and we're going to deal with some issues today that at some point probably all of us in this room have struggled with, um, that people who are struggling would find hope and healing just be able to find hope and, and that we would gain a deeper understanding and a deeper empathy and kindness uh, toward others. And so we are today dealing with uh, the subject of sex and marriage. 
And uh, I want to tell you that we deal, we're dealing with these two things on the same Sunday because they are fundamentally linked to one another, right? You can't, you can't separate sex from marriage. In order to understand sex, we have to understand marriage. Marriage was instituted by God. Sex was given as a good gift to bless that institution. But one of the deceptions of culture is that you can separate those things, and that you can take sex as its own thing, and, and you, can, um, you, can, you can view it separately, experience it separately. But again, we have to listen to the voice of the designer. And what he tells us, what he tells us that marriage is, um, is what it is. And the context that he's given and the boundaries he's given around the gift of sex are what we need to see very clearly. Um, as I've thought about just today, I was thinking, you know, I love the colder weather. My wife loves the hot weather because she ain't right. I love the cold weather. And um, this week has been awesome. And I love it because we can, we can get a fire going, right? I love to have a fire going. Uh, and I, a lot of you love to have fire going. You love building fires. I grew up with a wood-burning stove in our house. So I just love having a fire. Now think about a fire and think about now a fireplace or a fire pit, Right? The fire within the fireplace and the fire within the fire pit is a blessing. It's a blessing, right? It gives off warmth. It gives off heat. You can cook on it if, if you want to. Uh, if you build a fire out in the middle of a dark pasture and there are people around, you know what they're going to do? They're going to gravitate to that fire. Why? Because we're drawn to the light of it. Every one of us has got a little bit of a moth in us. You know what I mean? We're just drawn to the flame. And um, so fire... Listen, within its context, in your fireplace at home is a blessing. Let one of those logs roll out of the fireplace and land on your carpet. Fire outside of its context and outside of its boundaries transitions from being a blessing to being utterly devastating and destructive. All right? I couldn't help but think, when I knew I was going to mention that, I couldn't help but think of 2011. Y'all remember all the wildfires we had in East Texas? here about 12 years ago, deep, deep drought, wildfires everywhere. Um, some of those started as a result of, of electrical issues. Some of them started because a fire was begun, but it didn't stay within its boundaries. And what you saw were homes burned down, businesses burned down, hundreds and hundreds of acres just turned to ash. And I want to tell you, sex is like that. Sex is like a fire. And within the, con the construct and within the boundaries that God has placed around it, it is good. It is a blessing. It means it's meant to give joy and intimacy and connection. But sex outside of God's design, outside of his boundaries, can be destructive. And it can be devastating. Um, and so this morning is about gaining an understanding of sex and marriage within God's design. All right, so let's grab our Bibles. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. And here's where we are. We've kind of gone through the creation narrative. God has created all that, all that there is. He's created man and woman. And we're going to hear Adam speak about this moment. God has made Eve from Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, if you're there, let me hear you say, the Bible is true. 
This is what God's Word says. Then the man said, so this is Adam speaking, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she, has, she was taken out of man. And now God speaks. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in these verses, we see marriage and sex coming onto the scene for the first time. That's what we see in that one little verse, and we'll unpack that. Really, the first truth that I want you to hold on to is very simple, but it's central to our understanding of sex, and it is this. Sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. Very simply put, sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. God is the giver of all good gifts. Do you believe that? If not, I need you to read James 1, 27, where it says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. He is the giver of good gifts, which means any good gifts from him does not need to be a taboo subject for his people. And when sex comes up in church, I said this earlier, we tend to get a little, I don't want to talk about that, right? Are we even allowed to talk about this, right? <laughs> but I think this is a tactic of the enemy. What he does is he twists the culture into confusion, but he twists the church into being timid. And what he does is he speaks lies that says this is too awkward to talk about, it's too difficult to deal with, it's too personal, that sort of thing. So he twists us into timidity or indifference. Um, but when we recognize the reality that God is the creator, right? He's the designer of this gift. And when we see him that way, him as the designer, and we see sex and marriage that way as his gift to us, then we are able to see that his aim in giving us the gift is to bless us. That's his aim. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bless us, right? Any, any gift that we give with the right heart is meant to bless the person that we're giving it to. Now, some of y'all know that you've given gifts with the wrong heart, right? How many of you acknowledge you've given gifts to people, wedding or something like that, and you were like, they don't deserve this. I don't know why I'm even giving this to them, right? Or when you were a kid, you gave a gift at a birthday party, and you were like, that's my He-Man. What what I, want, I want the Battle Cat or Megatron. He don't get to have that. That should be mine, right? And so... But when we give a gift with the right heart, we give it to be a blessing uh, to someone. Something that I've kind of discovered as we've built the house over the last 47 years that it's taken me to build this house. Uh, is <laughs> there have been things that I have learned how to do along the way that I didn't know how to do before. And quite frankly, I didn't want to know how to do, right? There were just stuff I didn't want to know. Uh, but now I do know because it was either learn or live outside. And Carrie said we couldn't do that, so I learned. And so <laughs> one of those things is trimming out a house and windows and doors and building shelves. Now, for some of you, building shelves is a simple thing, and you're like, yeah, I can whip out some shelves, no problem. For people who it is a problem, it was hard, all right? So no judgment. It took me a while. I figured it out, though. And so I've built shelves in closets, and um, here's something I've discovered. I've discovered that 
my wife loves the shelves that I've built. Now, here's what I want to tell you something. I've been to the store. I've seen shelves that you can spend good money on. Can I tell you something? They look better than mine. I know that. <laughs> they look great. They look awesome. And I'm like, look at that. Um, but there's something, when, if you were to visit our home, the first thing Carrie's going to do is show you her pantry. You want to know why? Because um, it's not, I don't see it as something super special, but she is so proud of it and she loves it. And she finds more joy and more satisfaction out of the pantry and the master closet that I built than out of anything we could have gone and spent our money on. And here's why. Here's the reason I think why. Because she knows when I built that pantry, I did it with her in mind. When I built the master, I was doing that with her in mind. And there's something uniquely satisfying for me when I see her get joy out of that. And I want to tell you, marriage and sex are not human ideas. These are designed by a God, and they are given to us as good gifts. And I want you to hear me, church. It is His joy when His children find blessing and satisfaction in His gift. It's His joy. So that's the first thing I want you to see. These things are a gift from God, and we should never see them as anything less. Sex and marriage is a gift designed by God. Here's the next idea. This is where we'll spend most of our time. Sex by design is for marriage. So sex and marriage are a gift designed by God, and sex by design, in His design, is for marriage. If you back up a few verses from Genesis 2, back into Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you see these words. It says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So in Genesis 1 here, we see that God made male and female. What does that mean? We'll deal more with this in the weeks ahead. It means this, God is the designer of gender. And when God designed gender, what he designed was male and Female. God could have created anything he wanted, but what he designed and what he blessed was male and female. And then we get to Genesis 2 and we see the first marriage ceremony that we read a moment ago. And what we discover is sex comes on the scene in the context of marriage. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. God creates woman. He brings her to Adam. Adam says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You get to Genesis 2.24, what we just read, and you see the first marriage ceremony where it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That he, that's one word in Hebrew, that hold fast. That's one word in Hebrew. We translate it two words, hold fast, but it, what it means is to cling. It means to adhere to, to stick to is what it means. You see it used throughout the New Testament. And it's translated um, to cleave. It's translated to abide with, uh, to be joint, to be closely joined. And so there's this picture of marriage being: we're going to leave the father and the mother, step away from the family we were and the identity we had, and we're stepping in to being closely joined, abiding with, holding fast to husband and wife. So you see the first. Marriage, and you see it take place there, and then out of that flows these words. 
and they shall become one flesh. That word for flesh is the Hebrew word meaning a person, body. It could also mean skin, right? That becoming one flesh, that is, that is sex. It's the act of consummating the marriage. And so, here's what we see. Within the construct of the first marriage, we see God's design for sex. Now, I want you to notice something really important. The command to be fruitful and multiply. The command for the two to become one flesh. This was not given to just any couple. It was given to a married couple. It was given to a couple where God said, you were to leave and cleave to one another, be closely joined, united to one another in a covenant relationship, and in that boundary, you are to be fruitful and multiply. You are to become one flesh. By design, sex is created for marriage. And listen, every time, every time, you see sex outside of God's design, outside of marriage. It is always a deviation from God's design, and it always leads to destruction. Always. So the question and answer is, okay, if sex by design is for marriage, then what is marriage? Because culture is waging an all-out assault on marriage. So what is it? If God's designed sex to fit into this context, then what is this? What's the construct of marriage? Here's what I would submit to you that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Marriage, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is one man and one woman united by covenant for a lifetime. That's what we see in God's Word. I'm going to just hold that up for a moment because there is much swirling in our culture that flies into a rage at that definition. Marriage, according to Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to see later, is affirmed over and over and over again in the Bible. Marriage, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is one man and one woman united by covenant for a lifetime. And so I, I want you to hear me say then, with this definition up, if God is the designer and God designed, in His design, He says marriage is this. Then anything that is not this is not marriage. You go, God, that's super exclusive. It's just, it's just holding up the design. Saying, here's what the designer says. And since I didn't design it, I don't get to redefine it however I want. This is one of the deceptions that we have to unravel. Culture wants to redefine marriage to be whatever it wants it to be. The issue is culture didn't design marriage. Our government did not design marriage. Marriage existed before government existed. It was given its definition and its understanding and its construct before, construct before ever a government existed. It wasn't culture's idea. It wasn't God's idea. or It wasn't government's idea. It was God's idea. And anything other than how God designed it ceases to be marriage at all. 
And so from the beginning here in Genesis, throughout human history, you see that standard of marriage in every healthy civilization. That's what, that's what you see. And any deviation away from that ceases to be marriage. Why? Because when you, when you deviate from the original in any way, it stops being the original, right? Your Honor, I would like a moment to present my first piece of evidence of New Coke, okay? <laughs> Who's old enough to remember this disaster of a product? Yep, all right. So if you're young, I want to tell you a little bit about what you're seeing in front of you. Uh, on the left is uh, garbage, and on the right is something that should live forever. So, in the 80s, the, 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 the soda wars were really kicking up. Here's what happened. Pepsi comes onto the scene, and they start to, to make, get a foothold, and all of a sudden, Coke starts to see their profit margins going down a little bit. Coke starts to see uh, their stocks going down. They're just noticing, oh, we got a problem here. Something's wrong. Pepsi's come on, and... We're starting to lose money for the first time in the company's existence. So what did they do? They panicked. And they said, we've got to change the product that got everybody to the table. We've got to change that, give them a new product, tell them how great it is. That's what we need to do. The problem was new Coke was trash, okay? was trash. And they knew they had a problem. Do you all remember when they did all the live taste tests. Do y'all remember that? And it was all this, they would go to these places and set up these blind random taste tests and what started happening is people liked Pepsi over New Coke. And they went, oh, we got a, we got a real problem. We got, we got a serious problem. And New Coke was an absolute flop. It was a flop. Now I want to ask, it's okay, you're among friends, but I am going to embarrass you if you raise your hand. Did anybody prefer the taste of New Coke? It's okay. I'm going to throw something at you if your hand goes up, but I love you very much, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. But what's the point there? The moment that Coke went to that product, it stopped being Coke. It stopped being what it was originally designed to be. Now, they correct, they righted the ship, and they immediately took Coca-Cola and they said, oh, wait a minute, sorry, everybody, let's give you this back. We're going to now call it the real thing. And uh, here's Coca-Cola Classic, right? And um, it ceased to be what it was the moment it became something else. And so I want you to hear me say the same is true for marriage and for sex. Sex outside of marriage breaks down the gift of God. And marriage outside of God's design ceases to be marriage at all. And so the question that I want to answer is this. If God designed marriage and sex, and if God by design made sex for marriage, why? Why? Why do these two things belong to one another? I think there's two answers to that. Here's the first one. Because sex is a uniting of souls. Uniting of souls. You will never hear that in culture. Ever. It's a knitting together of souls. It, listen to me, sex is so much more than being attracted to someone. It's more than a physical union. It's a spiritual, emotional, relational, soul level union. Listen to me, this is why sexual sin is so devastating. This is why it's so devastating. 
This is why people carry wounds and scars from sexual sin, either done to them or brokenness in their own lives for all of their life. Because it's more than physical. The two becoming one. There's, some, there's a melding of souls that is happening right there. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now, when Paul talks about body, he's talking about more than our physical frame. He's talking about all of us that makes us us. He's talking about the spirit, the soul, the mind, the heart, the body. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So he echoes back to the original design, right? But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Wow. So Paul is now saying, in the way that we join spiritually in relationship with Jesus Christ, when we join ourselves sexually to another person, it is deeper than the flesh. And to help us understand that, he is saying, in that way, when you join yourself in spirit, you are joined to the Lord in your spirit, right? So, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, his own soul, his own heart. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul tells us there is that sex is, is a uniting of all that, that we are relationally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You see this if you echo back to Genesis chapter 4 in the first one or two verses, you see the moment that uh, Adam and Eve conceive and she becomes pregnant with Cain. She bore a son. To describe that conception, here's what it says in the first verse of Genesis 4. It says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife. That knew is, knew meaning K-N-E-W. He knew her. It is, it is, that word is the most intimate of knowledge means he knew her deeper than physical. He knew her deeply, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Listen to me. Culture wants to twist this to say sex isn't really a big deal. It's just a part of normal human behavior. If you're attracted to someone, then just do that. That's how you discover if anything's real. By the way, that's, that's what culture has Diminish sex to be a measuring stick by which you determine whether or not you have a decent connection with someone. And so it's diminished it. Just, it's okay to just sleep with someone, no regrets, no strings attached. Here the pro here's the problem, there are strings attached. There are strings attached. It isn't a transactional thing. Sex has emotional strings attached. And some of you in this room know that. 
You know the devastation of the emotional strings attached to sex outside of God's design. It has relational strings attached, spiritual strings attached, physical strings attached. Which is why, listen, which is why it is meant to be experienced and enjoyed in the context of a covenant marriage, a covenant of emotional, relational, physical, spiritual faithfulness. This is deeper than the physical. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 5. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is just, he's teaching his, his disciples and the hundreds and thousands of people that are listening what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as he's teaching this, he starts getting specific to issues. And one of the issues is the issue of adultery. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Everybody in the room at the Sermon on the Mount on the mountainside would have been like, Amen, don't do that. But then Jesus peels the lid off the new standard. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her. Where? Where? In his heart. I got to imagine in that moment it got real quiet. What was Jesus, what was he exposing? It wasn't just an elevating of the standard of righteousness. It was helping us understand that sexual immorality is not just a physical thing. It's something that wounds the heart. It wounds the heart. But why? Because it's a uniting of souls. Now, I also want to say that our good shepherd is the shepherd of souls. And there is no wound that this can cause that the shepherd can't heal. Are you with me? Because I feel the heaviness of this in my own heart right now. I feel it. I do. Because your pastor is, this is the str struggle for me like it's a struggle for anybody. And I feel the heaviness of it on us. And there's times when we tell the truth that the enemy wants to say, yeah, that's true, and, you sh and now you're defeated by the truth because of a mistake made or because of a struggle internally. But hear me say, as devastating as sexual sin can be, the grace of God reaches past that. You can't outsend him. I'm trying to make eye contact with as many of you people as I can. You cannot outsend him. So right now the devil is saying defeat, 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 and I am saying hope, 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 life, healing, breakthrough, deliverance. Find it. It's here. It's here. So it's this united right. It's a spiritual issue. That's why God put it inside the context of marriage. Here's the second reason why I think he did that. And this won't take nearly as long for me to say. Because marriage and sex is meant to be an illustration of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? Marriage and sex is meant to be an illustration of the gospel. 
Marriage is meant to be a picture of the love and the unity and the faithfulness that we experience in the gospel of Jesus. Here's what I find interesting. You see this thread of marriage and husband and wife, bridegroom and groom, just woven from the beginning to the very end of the Bible. Think about it for a moment. In Genesis 1 and 2, God... uh, Uh, comes to the end of creation. He's created everything. And what is the first thing he does? He performs a wedding. He performs a wedding at the end of creation and he brings Adam and Eve together. What's the first thing God does when he delivers his people out of Egypt, out of slavery through Moses? What's the first thing he does? He weds himself to them. He performs this wedding and he says, I am going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And you're not going to have any God before me. And you're going to hold yourself faithful to me. And what did they say? We do. We do. And there was this marriage between God and Israel. You see, throughout the New Testament, he he describes his covenant relationship with his people as a husband and a bride. This is why God calls idolatry running after other gods. It's why he calls it adultery. Because when we elevate something above him, we are breaking the covenant faithfulness and the covenant vows we've made to hold him as God alone. And when we elevate something above him, it's adultery. That's why he calls it that. Go to the New Testament. When Paul describes a healthy, God-honoring marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, what's the picture he uses to help us understand it? The picture of Jesus in the church. (laughs) That's the picture he paints. When a healthy, God-honoring, thriving marriage, here's the standard. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. It's a picture of the gospel. And then go to Revelation. Go all the way to the end. And what's the big picture of Revelation? It's a bridegroom waiting on her her groom to come and all of eternity being a wedding feast. Trust me when I tell you, God treasures marriage. It's his design, it's his idea, and he wants yours to thrive. Why? Because it demonstrates your love for him, and the world should be able to look into the church and see a demonstration and an illustration of what faithfulness looks like to our spouses, to one another. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're struggle-free. It means the world can watch us struggle and see us remain true as a demonstration of the gospel we've received from God. It's meant to be an illustration of God's love for us and our love for Him. This covenant of, of unconditional love that we've been given And sex within marriage is the deepest expression of that faithfulness and that intimacy. It's our heart belonging to one person. And as we're faithful to them and we're intimate only with them, as they know us and we know them in ways no one else does, we're illustrating the covenant relationship where God says, I want you to belong to me and I'm going to belong to you and there's going to be intimacy between us and we're going to be faithful and you're going to be faithful to me and you're not going to give your heart to the things of this world. 
So sex by design is for marriage. Why? Because it's a uniting of souls and because it illustrates the gospel. Here's the last idea. We've already hinted at this, but I want to say it very clearly. Sex outside of God's design for marriage is a sin. Sex outside of God's design for marriage, hear me, in whatever way, in whatever way, is a sin. Any deviation away from God's design of sex experienced within the marriage covenant is a sin. I want you to hear me. The most prevalent sin in the church is not homosexuality. The most prevalent sin issues in the church have nothing to do with homosexual behavior or gender issues. The most prevalent sin in the church is heterosexual unfaithfulness. The most prevalent sin in the church are men and women opening the door for pornography to be a regular part of their life. I try not to be this on the nose all the time. But God wants to give you freedom. And some of you are so good at clearing your internet history, you don't remember the last time you asked God to set you free. What if he wants to set you free? Do you think he can? Do you believe God could set you free from that? He can. He has. He will. Adultery plagues the church. Being sexually, relationally, emotionally intimate with someone other than the one you gave your vows to. Lust plagues the church. The unchecked sexual thoughts and desires in your mind and heart for someone you aren't married to. Listen to me. This is a lie that we've believed that the devil has sold, which says if we only think it, it doesn't matter. As long as it stays between the ears, it's fine. And yet Jesus is the one that throws a grenade on that to say, no, the moment you linger, the moment you let that lustful thought take shape, that's the moment you've sinned in your heart. And you might as well have had the affair. Premarital sex. Sleeping with boyfriend and girlfriend because we're convinced it's just a thing we got to do. Culture has so devalued this. Sex today is as easy as swiping in an app. One way or the other. If you don't know what I mean by that, just thank God right now that you don't know what I mean by that. But there are apps that exist that you can swipe one way or the other with your intention of whether or not you will be sexually active with someone you don't really even know. But here's the thing we, here's the thing that happens in the church is we like to rank sin. We like to rank it. 
And we tend to rank higher and more egregious those sins that we don't struggle with. Are the, right? For instance, we take homosexuality and we hold it up as something uniquely grievous to the heart of God and we diminish the fact that we don't remember the last time we went more than a week without looking at porn. But somehow we've elevated this thing. So hear me. This is all, it is all sexual immorality. It's all sexual immorality. And we have to stop highlighting the ones we don't struggle with and start dealing with the ones we do struggle with because it's the sexual sin in our life and in our church that's grieving the heart of God and hindering the work He wants to do in your life. But hear me again. You are not without hope. You are not without hope. If you're in a dating relationship and it has gone too far, you can, you can, you can let God move in that right now. Right now. He can turn that relationship on a dime and start pouring blessing and favor and joy into it. And what you will find is more joy and life in a, in a, in a dating relationship according to God's design than you ever find outside of that. I, would, I, I don't even have time to tell this story. But here we go. Then what are you doing, pastor? I just, I, it's not even a story. You guys have heard me talk about my grandfather and my grandmother, John and Ada Rose Gall. You know they were older because her name was Ada Rose. <laughs> For the last 30 years of my grandfather's life, he was either on a walker, in a wheelchair, or bedridden. For 30 years... There was nothing sexually intimate between them. Can I tell you something, though? There was an intimacy they shared that I want to have in my marriage. You want to know why? Because there was something beautiful in how they knew one another and cared for one another. And sex, as that was a part of their life, when it was, it was a blessing but because they had honored God in the way that they honored him when it could no longer be a part of their life, their intimacy grew. It didn't diminish. And so I say that to say this, even in the early stages of a dating relationship, reject the lie that says you have to be sexual in order to be intimate. That is simply not true. It's not true. So what do we do? How do we respond this morning? I couldn't help but think about Hosea, the Old Testament prophet. You remember the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer? You guys know this story? Hosea was a prophet at a very difficult time. God's people had turned from him. They were doing what they want, turning to other gods. And God tells his man, Hosea, he says, Hosea, I want you to go and take a prostitute for a wife. I want you to go find a prostitute and you are to take her as your wife. So he does. He marries a woman named Gomer. And Hosea and Gomer have children together. 
you should read the names of their children. They're not awesome. One of them's name is No Mercy. I was like, whew, kids, thank your stars that your parents didn't name you that way. And what happened was Gomer did what she had always done. After a little while, she stepped out. And she went back to being a prostitute. She went back to being with other men to the point where she actually had become enslaved. And God told Hosea, okay, now, I want you to go buy her back. <gasps> what? What? That can't be what you want me to do. I want you to go buy her back and bring her back to your house. And she's going to be yours and you're going to be faithful to her. And it is in that way that God says, I pursue my people and I love them and I run after them. And when we were our most unfaithful to him, do you know what he did? He bought us back. He gave Jesus and he bought us back. And he said, I'm your husband. And when you aren't faithful, I'm still faithful. And my faithfulness to you is going to inspire your faithfulness to me. But when you make a mistake, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come get you and I'm going to bring you back. That is the character of the God who wants to meet you in your brokenness. There is no thing that exists in your life, no sin, no wound, no struggle, no hurt, no, de no deception, no betrayal, that the God who chases his people down with relentless love can't come get you and restore you. In the story of Hosea and Gomer, we aren't Hosea, we're Gomer. It's important to see that. So how do we respond this morning? I believe there are some of you in the room who, before you can be set free from any sin struggle, you need to experience the love of the God who pursues us and invites us into covenant relationship and faithfulness with Him. And the only way we have that love and that relationship is through Jesus. We don't get it any other way. And if you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life where you have met him and he's changed you and made you new, then you need to do that today. So what's going to happen is Philip and the team are going to sing for a moment and we're going to have ministers and encouragers. Just, they're going to be over here to the side. Just come. Sad to see you to make Jesus Lord. For the rest of us in the room, This needs to be a time of confession, of repentance, of getting our hearts right around these issues. And some of you are going to be, have lead feet because the devil is going to tell you if you step out, they're going to know you have sexual sin. So does the person sitting to your left and your right. Just go ahead. Come on. Would you rather look well or be well? There's not a single marriage in this room that is perfect, that doesn't need help, 
that doesn't need strengthening. There's not one marriage in this room that doesn't need more of the Holy Spirit, more honesty, more trust, more love. Not one, which means the moment we start singing, there ought to be couples all over the place going, God, that's us. Give us more. Give us more. I've made a mistake. She made a mistake. We've screwed this up. We need help. We need more. We aren't giving up because you aren't the God who gives up. So maybe as a spouse, as a couple, you come. If you're dating someone and they're with you, pray. God, help us. If you're walking through a season of singlehood, pray. God, help me. If some of these other issues like pornography are an issue for you, come and pray and ask God for help. And then ask a brother in Christ for help or a sister in Christ for help. Lord, I pray you would just just move. Help us, help us. Lord, help us, Holy Spirit. Bind the devil from our room. Shout down the lies that he is speaking and whispering right now. Where there is fear, give courage. Where we feel weak to move, give us strength. Where the enemy says they're going to know. Father, help us to trust that we are already known before you and still we're accepted, still we're received, still you came and got us and you love us and you desire us. Lord, help us. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's pray with one another. Let's pray and ask God to move.